Acts chapter 14, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis the Revelation and coming to Acts chapter 14. Now it happened in Iconium that they, that is Paul and Barnabas, went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so, uh, and spoke to that great multitude both, uh, and spoke that a great multitude both of the Jews and of the Greeks believed. So chapter 14 uh, brings to a close the record of Paul's first missionary journey uh, with Uh, Barnabas, Uh, John Mark has departed to go back to Jerusalem uh, earlier uh, than this, and so uh, he has left the city of Iconium, and uh, he has left the city of Antioch of of Pisidia uh, after uh, wiping the dust off of their feet in the face of what was general rejection of them there, though that many, many people uh, did become Christians in those cities, but ultimately driven out of those cities uh, with great hostility uh, because of the threat that the gospel was then and the gospel is today um, to the powers that be so often, especially um, when you have religious uh, power people in positions of power, whether in religion or government, and are threatened by um, individuals making their own decisions in life, and even their own decision concerning uh, who they will believe in and who they will recognize uh, as uh, God. And so immediately they come to Iconium here. It's a great uh, success, and there's a great multitude, we're told, that becomes saved, and uh, also uh, both a large number of Jews and a large number of uh, Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas went into the synagogue there in Iconium, continuing the pattern of when there was a synagogue available, a large enough Jewish population uh, as a result to go in and lay the case for Jesus as Messiah and the Savior of the world to a group that had Uh, a knowledge of the God of the Bible and a knowledge of of the scriptures. And so uh, they uh, then uh, preach to them. uh, And obviously at some point in that uh, uh, synagogue service, they were um, asked to speak and uh, they uh, couldn't have spoken without an invitation uh, on the part of the ruler of the synagogue. Clearly, they proclaim the gospel as a part of their sharing in that synagogue. And, um, uh, and Jesus is the promised Messiah. And uh, without having preached the gospel, there would be no one, uh, any believers at all. And so this great number become Christians in a moment. And so, uh, and then uh, Paul and Barnabas lived happily ever after, returned to Antioch and lived their lives in uh, peace and in uh, quiet. Now we're gonna see the same thing occurring. The expansion of the kingdom of God always expands at the, at the expense of the kingdom of darkness. And uh, the kingdom of darkness does not give up people, does not give up uh, areas that it has controlled for a long time without a fight. It must, they must give it up. 
uh, but never without a fight. And so uh, that's what we see uh, occurring here. But the unbelieving Jews, some believed and some didn't, uh, they stirred up the Gentiles and they poisoned their minds uh, against the brethren. They, uh, uh, and they, so they poisoned their minds against Paul and Barnabas and against the, uh, those that had become uh, Christians. And so here we see a group of people who heard the gospel, God's invitation, uh, uh, and extending the invitation of, uh, by God of salvation to mankind, salvation found and putting our trust in Jesus and in his death, burial, and resurrection for, uh, to provide for the forgiveness of our sins. They heard that message just like everybody else did. And, um, but here you have a group of people that exist always in human history, and that is they're not content to make their own choice about things in life or to make their own choice concerning uh, Jesus but, and then leave other people to make their own choice uh, and accept that. And so uh, here we see that um, cancel culture has always existed. Uh, and, and so they want to come in and just silence uh, here anybody else having the freedom to hear honestly and openly and come to their own uh, own conclusion. And so uh, they come in to hinder them in that way. And so it's not a new phenomenon. Um, it has uh, been used since the very early church in an attempt uh, supremely to silence uh, Christians and, uh, and certainly in that early church, but it's the same thing that's true today. You see so much of the uh, cancel culture that goes on where it's talking about pronouns or it's talking about this or that, that's a sensitivity to one group or uh, another. Under the prince of darkness, under, and Satan is the god of this age, that all of that, those are uh, preliminary uh, 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 boxing matches before you get to the main uh, card. All of that stuff of just shutting off voices, uh, nobody being able to speak uh, against something uh, to become a censor for uh, truth, our truth, always the ultimate goal uh, is going to be the Christian message because that's the thing that Satan is fighting against. So when you see this cancel culture that's operating within the culture, you can look at it, just roll your eyes and say it's nonsense and I can't wait till this blows over. If it blows over, thankfully there's some pushback occurring on it here today. But to realize the, the threat that it is, that Satan's target ultimately is to so condition a culture to accept that, that then they can go after the church and the truth and the preaching uh, of the gospel because that's where eternal destinies are, uh, are uh, determined. And so uh, here this, uh, this attempt is made and, and, it's, and it, they recognize the threat, the great threat in, in human history and in the human condition and that is the truth of God that sets us free from all of this kind of stuff. But everybody is, is to, should, should um, any time, and I mentioned it before, but any time you have to artificially protect your position or your truth, it's a tacit confession of the weakness of your truth uh, or the weakness of your position. 
And of course, Christianity is not afraid of, of any of that. Uh, an open debate, an open dialogue, an open talking about these things, but uh, this group uh, very much was, and they continue to be uh, to this day. You notice their method there in verse two. It's an interesting phrase, and that is they, uh, they came, the Jews, unbelieving Jews, they came to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were very, very superstitious by and large, worshiping all kinds of things, as we'll see in a moment in, in that day, and they poisoned their uh, minds. That's an interesting thing to say about the mind, and it reveals to us that the mind can be poisoned. Your mind can be poisoned. My mind can be poisoned, and it can be uh, poisoned uh, very easily. How does this po uh, poisoning occur here? Um, in the passage, I asked myself as I was looking at it uh, again this week, that poisoning occurs when we just blindly believe what other people tell us about uh, others without investigating the truth of their claims uh, on, our, on our own or believing, blindly believing something to be true simply because uh, somebody who claims to be an authority on the subject tells us that this is what uh, all people who are in, in authority on a particular subject uh, believe. And so uh, this is where that kind of thing happens. They just believed what these people uh, said. And uh, we could go on and on and on about the, the, uh, the, that poisoning that, that occurs um, in that way. And when you, have, when you have people being called on to believe something, uh, about somebody else and then not allowing them or even encouraging them to um, investigate the truth of the claims that you're making uh, and, uh, and, uh, and to test what it is that, that you're saying about those other people or whatever the subject might be, uh, then now you're no longer uh, dealing with um, education, you're dealing with indoctrination. And when we look at our culture here today, we see that it is um, very much into today um, indoctrination and not an education. I'll give you an example, global warming. I don't have a position on it, I don't have a PhD in it, and I'm always suspicious of uh, uh, people that make a claim related to this and then 1,600 uh, renowned scientists come out and say, no, that simply isn't true. Or man-made global warming, is warming I, I should say on that. And so, you know, what's going on and all of that, I have time to do what I do on a weekly basis and not investigate all these things, even though I've read a number of books on, on, on the subject. Um, but all of this that is going on today, um, there's no discussion about it. There's no education. You have to remember, realize in my generation growing up, in my formative years, uh, my 20s and 30s, you would never have a government or a, populate, or, or a politician getting up and telling us what to believe. It just wouldn't happen. You'd be laughed off the stage. In order for you to pass a bill and spend money, uh, you had to make that case to the public you had to win that case, educate them, and in order to get that money to come, uh, come out. And today, there's no education. 
uh, that it goes on at all. There's a view that comes from the top, and then there is this uh, fiat that goes out, and now they're going to tell us what we're to believe related to these kind of things. And so the environment that we're in, you can go on and talk about transgenderism or all of the other things that are hot buttons uh, today, and you look at them, and education or investigation related to it is almost non-existent. But we are very much in an indoctrination age, uh, something bordering on a propaganda related to uh, the characteristics of it. And it's very, very easy for our minds to be poisoned uh, as a result of it. And so they poisoned their minds and stirred them up uh, against Paul and Barnabas, and if they thought that Paul and Barnabas was, uh, were going to wilt in the front before the persecution, uh, therefore they stayed there a long time, uh, speaking boldly in the Lord. I like this about the Apostle Paul. Um, I, I, when I say, I, I, you know, he's a man to me, and, um, and it doesn't mean that women don't have the same characteristics and I can't recognize them in that. So don't write me a letter related to it, but I, I just want to uh, uh, speak uh, pointedly to it. And he's declaring the truth uh, concerning salvation, the most important message that anybody's going to hear in their life. And when opposition comes, he doesn't wring his hands and try to please everybody and try to work out a middle ground here. Politics is the art of, of compromise, not God and his word. Uh, these things are not open to negotiation. He knows what the truth is and he, he tells us the truth. And so uh, here uh, he is, he responds and he stays, and he stays in order that he can further disciple this large group of new Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, that have become uh, Christians. So Paul sees this flash of hostility, and immediately he realizes about these new Christians, the environment that they're going to live for Christ in is a very hostile environment. And I'm not leaving until we've had a chance to disciple them enough to be able to stand in that environment. And so he and Barnabas, they, they stay uh, in that place and speak boldly in the Lord. And, uh, and the Lord was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done uh, by their hands. And so God comes in the way that he does often in the book of Acts. The message is preached, Sometimes even before the opposition or persecution occurs, God comes in and then accomplishes uh, signs and wonders, miracles, in which he, by means he is adding his amen to the message. Uh, uh, him uh, uh, manifesting himself as the God who is behind this message that they're preaching and manifesting his power uh, and, and to change lives in these, uh, these miracles. And so God jumped in as he does repeatedly in, uh, in that way. It was also a way of openly confirming uh, Paul's uh, calling here now uh, as an apostle. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part sided uh, with the uh, apostles. And so that's always true. And as I mentioned a little bit last week, it's so important in our Christian service to keep our eyes on um, what is encouraging. 
uh, about what God has called us to, the encouraging fruit related uh, to that. And uh, always when there's opposition like this, it means there's plenty of fruit to put our eyes on. That's what produces the opposition. Uh, but so often our eyes can go on the opposition and, uh, and be paralyzed by it, and, and then uh, uh, we lose sight of, look at all these lives that are being changed, look at all these eternities that are being, uh, being changed, and uh, the necessity of keeping our eyes uh, on the, the good uh, fruit. And certainly, uh, to keep our eyes focused upon what God has called us to, and not to keep our ears and our focus on uh, what the opposition is saying about uh, any of us or our service to the Lord. The old saying is, is if the devil can uh, recognize us as a person who has to run around and put out every fire that he starts concerning us, every accusation, every poisoning of the mind, then uh, he will do so much of that, it'll take all of our time to put out those fires and no time left then to do the work. Now, there are times where a person must step forward and, and address their character and their reputation and to protect that, uh, but, but, um, but it, it is more of an exception than as a rule when, when uh, uh, people are saying all kinds of wild things as they're, uh, they're, they're doing here. And so uh, that division was there in the city and then uh, a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews. Now with their rulers, that is the, those that didn't believe, uh, they got the powers that be within the, the, the city of, of Iconium and, uh, and with the intent of abusing and stoning Paul and Barnabas. Well, that's not very nice. So they, when you talk about, it talks about abuse and then stoning. Um, stoning isn't with the intent of abusing in the ancient world. It, was, it uh, carried the intent of killing you and stopping your life and stopping your ministry. And that's what uh, they were uh, intent upon doing here. And when Paul and Barnabas became aware uh, that this was what they were up to, they then fled to Lystra and uh, to uh, Derby, cities of uh, Lycaonia and to the surrounding uh, region. And so Paul and Barnabas, they then fled to these cities. It wasn't cowardice on their part, but uh, wisdom, very, very consistent with Jesus's um, instruction to uh, them, to the disciples, to us. And Jesus said, but when they persecute you in this city, uh, flee to another. So uh, you've done your work here. There's people waiting for you now in the next city. Keep on moving to uh, the, next, uh, the next person and uh, continue uh, forward. And so there has to be, uh, there is that courage, but there is wisdom with that, that courage. We're not to tempt God uh, and, and say, I'm gonna keep myself here and, and this, and uh, clearly a person will be you know, killed before the hour is over, or something like that. They, um, 
but uh, that, that element of wisdom and caution, nothing wrong with it. Now it talks about uh, Iconium here, which they're coming out of and now going to the cities of Lystra and Derby. And Iconium, Lystra and Derby were, were cities um, in a part of the ancient world known as Galatia in the Roman Empire. So when you read Paul's letter to the churches, churches, in Galatia, it was written to uh, these three churches uh, that were established in these cities, as well as all of the other cities there. So it gives you an idea of Paul developing a relationship, where he develops a relationship, how he maintains contact with uh, the work there. And they were preaching then, as they come into Lystra and Derby. they were preaching the gospel there. And, uh, and in Lystra, as they're preaching the gospel, a certain man is listening. Now, when they come into Lystra, here we have no mention of a synagogue, no mention of going in there, reasoning with the Jews from the scriptures, none of that. They come into Lystra, and for the first time in the book of Acts, this is a purely Gentile environment. It is a purely pagan environment. And so they may have been uh, speaking out on the street uh, about Jesus and about salvation. And as, he, as Paul is preaching the gospel there, there's a certain man, he's listening, who has been without strength in his feet. He's been crippled, and he was sitting there, and he'd been a cripple from his mother's womb. And so born uh, handicapped in that way, and he had never, ever known uh, what it was to walk, and he's listening. And this man heard Paul speaking, and Paul looks at him and observes him intently and then saw that he had the faith to be healed, and he said then, I mean, what an exciting uh, surface, he said to him with a loud voice, stand up straight uh, on your feet, and he leaped uh, up, uh, and, he, uh, and he walked. And so Paul does this by some means of a supernatural revelation of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, to him. He looks in this man's eyes and his face. He sees uh, the Holy Spirit is revealing. You have several spiritual gifts from 1 Corinthians 12 that are in action here. You have a word of knowledge, that is a piece of knowledge that you could never know unless God supernaturally gave it to you, a knowledge that this man has the faith to be healed. And then a word of wisdom, what to do with that piece of knowledge to call him uh, to stand. You have the gift of miracles here. You have the gifts of healing and operation here and, uh, and the gift of faith in operation. All of these gifts being uh, exercised in this beautiful, beautiful event. And it, and it, keep, and it keeps us, uh, uh, it makes us remember in our own Christian lives uh, to be open to these kind of promptings and leadings uh, that, of the Holy Spirit. Um, if the, if a, the whole aspect of the Holy Spirit is something that's fairly uh, new to you as a Christian and you're, you're not uh, that familiar with it, Chuck's book on the Holy, Chuck Smith's book on the Holy Spirit is invaluable in that, degree, in that regard. Um, there's a book called Concerning Spiritual Gifts. I forget who the author of it was. That was put out before Chuck wrote his book, 
and, um, and was very helpful for me coming out of a background that did not believe in uh, a vast amount of the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and certainly didn't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the uh, prophetic gifts, uh, the word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and certainly not the gift of tongues. And so I had to reorient in reading my Bible, what does the Bible say about this? And to do it safely, where I could uh, come to my own conclusions related to it, and, uh, but that importance of being led by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it'll happen, we'll be in a conversation with somebody about uh, the Lord, or maybe we'll be in a conversation uh, sharing the gospel with someone, or we'll be in a conversation related to something else, and then we find ourselves saying something in that conversation that we could have never thought of in a million years. If you tried to sit down and you had 10 years, you could never bring that to your mind. And yet, here it comes forth. And, and, it's a, and unbeknownst to us, it's received as a prophecy. God's speaking through that illustration or that uh, whatever is being said or a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. And so, uh, these things are going on uh, if we allow them to happen uh, in our lives. And so... Paul calls him to stand. The gift of healing is uh, administered to him uh, right away. He's ministering to, again, a, a very pagan, idolatrous, Gentile culture and a very superstitious culture. And so God comes in and bears witness to the gospel. He confirms his word with signs and wonders. Don't get that backwards. And so he confirms the message with this miracle, and that's the way that so often the apostles uh, approach the Gentiles because their lack of foundation uh, in, in, uh, in the scriptures. Well, you can imagine news of this. This guy's been in the city for all of these years and he's grown and, and he's a cripple from his mother's womb. He's had to be carried all of his life. Everybody knows this guy. And now he's jumping around and he's walking. So, uh, as this happens, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, Zeus being uh, kind of the king of the gods in, in, in that uh, mythology or religion. And then uh, Paul, they called him Hermes or Mercury uh, because he was the chief speaker. Now, the reason it takes Paul and Barnabas a few minutes to figure out what's going on here, they're going to protest at this uh, conviction that these people have come to the, about them, that they are uh, Roman and Greek gods uh, de deserving of sacrifices. And the reason they couldn't get their bearings and understand what was happening initially is because apparently there was a local dialect here and the Lycaonian language, and uh, they knew what they were saying, but Paul and Barnabas didn't, uh, didn't know. So they identify Barnabas as Zeus and Paul as uh, Mercury. And, and uh, uh, they immediately uh, begin to uh, elevate the, uh, 
the instrument that God used rather than looking and saying, who did this through these people? So they assumed they were gods. And then the priests of Zeus, there in, uh, in town, uh, the temple was located at the front of the city in a prominent uh, place. Word comes to him clearly uh, that uh, Zeus is down the street. And he's healing people that are lame from their mother's womb. What are you doing in the temple? You better get down there and worship him. And so, uh, dutiful, uh, diligent at least, priest that he is, uh, he then brought oxen uh, with him down the street toward Paul and Barnabas and and garlands uh, uh, to the gates and tending to sacrifice with the multitudes. They're going to sacrifice these animals to Paul and Barnabas uh, there in the city. Just another day uh, of Christian service. And, uh, And so this... Uh, this uh, reaction that uh, that goes on, and uh, then the uh, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul now they understand what's happening at this point. They heard this, and they and they said, "Good, finally some recognition on this missionary journey." After all of this rejection, I think we'll just we'll bathe in this adulation for 48 hours, and then we'll tell them we're not Zeus and and Mercury. But that's not what they did. They were mortified. Just, and for a Jew to tear their clothes, I mean, it just uh, it, it, it represents the rending of their hearts. This just kills them to see that this message that they've been preaching, the miracle that God has done, has now been misunderstood as being the product of Zeus and Mercury. And, and that they're about to have animals sacrificed to the two of them. So they heard it, they tore their clothes, they ran in among the multitude of people saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. We're not, we're not Zeus, we're not uh, Hermes, we are people just like you. And we're here to preach to you, not the conclusion that you've come to here, but to preach to you that you should turn from these useless things uh, that you're worshiping and uh, the deification of the flesh, essentially, and uh, and turn to the living God and who made the heavens and, and the earth and the sea and and all that are in them. So now Paul is in front of a purely Gentile um, audience. And so he doesn't say to them, now you remember Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 53, they wouldn't have made a dent. They didn't know who Isaiah was. They didn't know the God of the Bible or the God of the Jews at all. And so Paul goes, does what he always does with the Gentiles. He, go, he goes back for, for witnessing to someone with no background like that. He goes back to the God of the Bible as the creator, the creator of all things, the designer of all things. And he said, this is who we're endeavoring to turn you to, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own 
uh, ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself uh, without a witness uh, to his existence. And what is that witness? Uh, that he did good. Uh, we, he gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. In other words, you have been partaking of the benefits of this God that I'm preaching all of your life and not realizing who this God is. And that's who I'm trying to tell you about, the one who has created the earth, the one who has designed the earth. And with these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from, uh, from sacrificing uh, to them. And, and so uh, this, uh, this very, very exciting uh, event of what it is that was, was going on there. When it, um, when it talks about uh, the, the worship of Zeus and the wor worship here of, of Hermes, it has a backstory related to, uh, the, um, to the city of Lystra. The story was uh, that uh, Zeus at one time uh, came to the region of, uh, of Lystra and, um, and, and then uh, he came as a common man. And he tried to uh, walk unidentified among the population and tried to find uh, a source of hospitality, someone that would feed him or put him up. And he went to a thousand homes and a thousand homes uh, turned him away. And then finally this poor older couple uh, opened their door to him and uh, fed him and took care of him. And, uh, and so uh, Zeus came back and he destroyed uh, the, the cities in that region, the thousand homes that had denied him hospitality, and he had turned their humble abode into a giant marble and gold castle kind of thing. And they probably thought, oh, the maintenance on something like this, what am I gonna do with it? You ever see that? Sometimes you'll see that in these, where they're giving away a car or something like that. And here it is. It's a, it's a Jaguar XKE with however many pistons and what it, my first thought is, where are you going to service that thing? And uh, somebody buys a car for $160,000. Do you know how much that insurance is going to cost you every month? I am a Scot, incurably a Scot. So I'd have to sell the thing and then just go buy a lottery tickets and get cash. I'm just kidding. So, uh, so uh, then they, they thought, well, well, we missed him the first time, Zeus, when he came uh, as a human being. And we don't want to be guilty of that a second time. And so this is why they're, you know, really on the spot and, and moving aggressively here in the situation. And so uh, then uh, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium and uh, where they had been, uh, Paul and Barnabas had tr been treated uh, hostily by a portion of the population, though many people had become Christians in, the, in those cities. Uh, they're not, again, they're so into not allowing anybody to hear the message of the gospel. I mean, you could, this, is, this is cancel culture on steroids. So 
uh, they travel to this city when they find out that Paul and Barnabas are there and, uh, and they persuaded the multitudes uh, to uh, come to an open debate between uh, the Jewish religious leaders and the priests of Zeus and the apostle Paul uh, on God and the means of salvation. An open discussion and you can all come to your own conclusion. <laughs> That's not funny. They, did, they, they persuaded the multitudes. Uh, again, this propaganda, this poisoning, and they stoned Paul, and assuming that he was, he was dead, they then uh, dragged him out of the city, uh, again, supposing him uh, to be uh, dead. And so, um, imagine, you think about, I've never seen a stoning in my lifetime, I never want to see a stoning, but I have a vivid enough imagination um, to know what a, a horrible, horrible uh, way to die that must be. Uh, one stone after another, inflicting its pain, uh, inca- incapacitating on some level. The next five stones, incapacitating on a certain level. Down you go. Now you're trying to protect yourself. Now you curl up. And now you're just wondering how long is this going to go on. You're trying to keep your uh, mind open in hopes of, of surviving this thing. And then there's the final stone. And that's it. You've been stoned uh, to death. And the Apostle Paul had that happen um, in his uh, life. And you think about um, what a uh, what a incredibly uh, fickle crowd. Here they are, just a few days or a few weeks earlier, considering him and Barnabas and him in particular to be Hermes, messenger uh, of the gods, and then now uh, they take out uh, him out of the city. And then they have so flipped their assessment, now they stone him uh, to uh, death. And so this, um, uh, some people are like that, one day you're a god, and next day you know, they want to stone you. Uh, Dylan had, uh, had that song, everybody must get stoned. And people thought, well, because it happened in the 60s, he's talking about uh, getting loaded. He wasn't talking about getting loaded at all. There's always been a spiritual bent in his, his songs. He was talking about this very thing. Uh, everybody's going to get stoned in life. Maybe it'll be emotionally, maybe it'll be mentally, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and not, not physically, but it will happen to everyone. And, it's a, and the point that I think he's making related to the song is you're not going to please all of the people all of the time. It just isn't going to happen. And, um, and so... Uh, here, uh, this uh, lesson really related to ministry that when, you ha- when we're in a season of popularity, everybody thinks we're something uh, great to uh, not allow that to go to our heads uh, uh, because uh, that will flip soon enough. And, uh, and then be careful that when it does flip individually or by a large group of people because of the fickleness of a lot of people, not all of them, but a lot of people, that it doesn't discourage us uh, in the work and just think this is a bunch of thankless people and why am I spending my life doing this and, and, uh, and all of that. And so there's that, that 
that recognition. And so here you have this uh, um, uh, uh, quick turn that has occurred uh, within his life. And that's, that's the highs and the lows of, of Christian uh, ministry. And you look at the, the, look at the nation that we live in and you look at um, how quickly someone can be exalted to a high, high esteem, and then in an hour, the fickle crowd turns, and now they're a nobody. And one of the things it's important to understand in Christian service, in life in general, but in Christian, in Christian service, the world loves to elevate people and put them on the platform uh, for the day that they can tear them down and destroy them. Not everybody, but a good portion of people. And what a glee there is in both things so often. And we see it within, within the culture. This is why I'm so glad. I know, that, I know there's tremendous advantages um, uh, to uh, being a young person in, in, in this culture at this point in time as opposed to when I was, uh, what the country was like when I was a, a younger person. Um, but uh, you didn't have likes and not likes and this kind of stuff on social media. It's creating a mental health crisis among our young people. Nobody, nobody can handle knowing what everybody thinks about us or what a large number of people think about us. It is not healthy to know that much. And so to fight for these likes, to fight for popularity is is such a a, a God and an addiction within our culture is to to fail to realize uh, that the moment that group can turn on you, uh, they will uh, do that. And so in our Christian service, one of the things that uh, has to happen, and God is faithful to do that, is it it, it ultimately turns to um, the audience of one, and that is the Lord himself. To say, I will do what I do. I love everybody, but I will do what I do um, uh, based upon um, uh, what he thinks about me. And then everything else can fall where it may, and that's a safe place to be. Because then you've got something steady in our lives. We can steady on uh, while this other thing is ebbing and flowing. And it's always ebbing and flowing. Uh, when they stone you on social media, um, they'll want you to put you back up on a pedestal again to stone you again. I mean, there's only so many people you can do that to. And so you run out of them and you're looking for new people to do that. And, uh, and so, uh, but to to realize that uh, God allows these things, I think, to happen so often in our life and we just look and say, I, I can't care this much about what everybody in the world thinks of me. I can only think about what God thinks of me and make that my focus. There is a, a lot of Bible uh, students believe this is where Paul uh, received his vision from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul wrote, I know a man who 14 years ago, whether in the body I don't know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. But how he, and he's speaking of himself, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words that are not lawful for a man to 
uh, utter. And so there is the possibility that he did indeed die on that scene and then uh, was brought up into the glory of heaven uh, for a time and then returned to his body or that in the midst of the, the, the horror of that um, stoning that God gave him this vision or this revelation related to uh, heaven uh, its, itself. It is believed as well that Timothy was likely a witness to Paul's uh, stoning in Lystra and that he, uh, he uh, became a follower of Jesus Christ uh, at this point by virtue of Paul's preaching of the gospel uh, in, the, in the city and, uh, and was one of those that stood around Paul's uh, lifeless body outside of the city. And so, you know, Paul, when he leaves, and so often we can leave a lot of ministry environments or situations, you say, that was a complete disaster. I can't see anything coming, uh, good coming out of that. And yet Timothy uh, would one day become like a son uh, to Paul and and his uh, ministry uh, protege uh, by virtue of of witnessing not only Paul's stoning, but then verse 20, what happened next. However, when the disciples gathered around him, now to see what's the damage or should we call uh, an undertaker, uh, he stood up. So a little bit of leg movement, a little arm movement, and then pretty soon he's moving, he's alive, and he stood up and he ran for Derby. No, that's not what he did. That's not Paul. He went back into the city and, uh, and then uh, departed with Barnabas the next day to go uh, to Derby. And when they had preached the gospel to that city in Derby now uh, and made many disciples, they then returned to Lystra, Iconium, and um, Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of God. So he returns to Lystra, uh, the site of his stoning. He returns to Iconium, where they made a a violent attempt upon the life of both Paul and Barnabas, and then they returned to the city of Antioch of Pisidia, the city from which they were uh, forcibly um, uh, expelled. And so, uh, despite the danger of those environments to them, uh, they, they returned to those places because they were concerned about these uh, small and large groups of Christians that had come to become Christians in that environment to make sure that they were well-established and, and, uh, and, and well-organized before Paul and Barnabas then returned to their ascending church there uh, in, uh, in uh, Antioch. So you think about these churches are being established. It's Paul's first missionary journey and the, the churches are made up completely of brand new uh, uh, Christians. And I think about Paul, what a wonderful shepherd uh, he is in his manifest really and all of this is a tendency I think sometimes to think of him as this, this great intellect, this great theologian and uh, uh, and a doctrinal guy, but he's really a lover 
uh, of people as well. The first time they went into these cities, there's the old saying, ignorance is bliss. So on the, on the first missionary journey, the first time they went into those cities, they did not know what the response would be to them. Uh, they just dealt with it as it unfolded. Now they go back knowing the attitude of these cities toward them. It'd be kind of like I would think to myself, uh, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. There's no way I'm going back there. And yet something makes Paul go back to those cities despite the danger that it represented to him. And of course the thing that it was was the love that he had for God and the love that he had for these brand new Christians and their need to be discipled, just like somebody had discipled him as a, as a, uh, a young uh, Christian. And so uh, here he goes and he returns and uh, a love and concern for these new congregations. And I think that one of the things that the Lord uh, does as we serve the Lord, and I think um, you, we have to be engaged in Christian service, whatever it might be that God has called us to do and be in our neighborhood or in our city or our where, workplace or whatever it might be. It doesn't all happen inside of a church, um, uh, but that to realize that God will always be refining our motivations for why we do what we do in Christian service. It's very easy to, to do and to, to remain faithful in Christian service uh, because I want to be popular. I want to stand behind a pulpit and talk about God to other people. Or I have a great, uh, deep, unhealthy uh, need to be needed by other people. These are terrible motivations, but we bring a lot of bad motivations into our Christian service. We don't want to wait until all that's purified before we start to serve the Lord, but the Lord will start to purify our motivation, and then one day, and uh, whether we realize it in a day or not, one day we will realize, Lord, what I am doing for you, I would never do for anyone else, and I would never do it for myself. I do it uh, out of a, a love for you and a love that you have given me for your people. And what he does is he distills down all of our motivations, he refines them away until we have the one strong motivation that will take us through thick and thin, through the fickleness of, of God's people, the danger upon our lives, the frustration uh, that can be a part of it so often, and that is a love for God and a love for people. And the Apostle Paul had that, that occurred in his life, and, and it will occur uh, in our lives as, uh, as well. And so they went in, and then they, uh, uh, as they came uh, in, back to these cities, they strengthened the souls of the disciples, they built them up in the faith, they exhorted them, continue in the faith, you're doing great, and, and then they said, we must through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of God. You're not weird, you're not crazy, <laughs> because of the tribulation and the persecution you're facing, this is the way that it is as a Christian uh, in, uh, in this world. And so he then, uh, when he had appointed elders 
in every church uh, and uh, prayed with fasting and the appointing of those, those elders, uh, they commended them to the Lord uh, in whom they had believed. And so he establishes leadership. So these, chur- these churches are made up of almost entirely brand new Christians and yet he recognizes and, and he receives from God a, a, as a result of prayer who he is uh, to appoint in positions of leadership um, to help stabilize uh, the, the churches in, in these cities. And, and so he then obeys the Lord and, and whatever, what it is that God told him in prayer, who to put in, in, that, in that place. And I think it's important to realize, especially as a young person, especially as someone who is young in the Lord, that the most important thing in terms of a position of leadership in, in a church, the most important thing is calling, it is gifting, and it is character. And all of those things are more important than any experience that we might bring to those things. In other words, it is better to have someone who has very little experience yet in the faith, but they are committed to God. Uh, They have character, they have calling, they have gifting. You recognize it. The experience will come. The one thing you don't want is the person who has all of the experience, but they lack calling and gifting and character. And so you wonder sometimes how these, sometimes these uh, churches start and the leadership can be so young and all, and you can get a lot of goofy people elevated into um, positions that they should never be elevated into. But as long as some of those people uh, have that calling, they're serious about that calling, God will take them the rest of the way. And, and so he did in this early church. And so he entrusted them uh, to the Lord. Paul and Barnabas had to leave and leave them. And, uh, and, but the Holy Spirit wasn't going to leave them. And then they went and they preached the word in Perga. And they went down to uh, Atalaya. And from there they then sailed to Antioch, their sending church, where they had commend, been commended to the grace of God uh, for the work which they had completed. And now uh, when they had come and gathered uh, the church together in Antioch, they reported everything that God had done on this first missionary journey and how God had opened the door of faith not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And so Paul and Barnabas stayed there a long time with the disciples, probably a period now of one to two years before we move on into um, chapter uh, uh, 15 uh, next time. So we're gonna partake of the Lord's Supper uh, this evening as Jesus instructed us to. He said, do this in remembrance of me. He also said, do this um, until I uh, return. And so there's a a looking back related to the Lord's Supper. There's a looking forward to the the Lord's Supper and uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper. I think it accomplishes uh, a lot of things in our lives, but one of the things that it 
uh, it accomplishes is it reminds us that uh, Jesus is the most important uh, thing and the most important person with God the Father, of course, in, in, in the Christian life. So we see Paul and Barnabas going to these cities and they preach the gospel and they preach the gospel and they believed in, in, uh, in the gospel. And, um, and sometimes I've been in, in parts of the body of Christ where they'll say the gospel this and the gospel that and the gospel and the gospel does this and the gospel that. And I noticed that when they refer to the gospel, that's where I would refer to Jesus. And, and you can develop Theologically, we can we uh, can become very uh, theologically strong, and we can um, uh, our relationship with God can become very intellectual, and it's easy to happen because uh, the Word of God is so intellectually satisfying. It's so perfect in its truth. It's so perfect uh, in its wisdom. I mean, your mind uh, can have the time of its life in exploring it. But God doesn't call us to have a relationship supremely with the gospel or even supremely with the word of God, but to have a relationship with Jesus himself. And that's why there's a combination, you see it in churches all around the world, where the word of God is taught, we worship him with all of our mind, but then we worship him also in song with all of our hearts and the necessity of that. When Paul looked at his, and you couldn't have a a bigger, greater, you know, mind or theologian in the history of the church except for Jesus and, uh, and all of the things that he knew. And then he's, he writes to the church at Philippi to describe his Christian life. And he says, I know in whom I have believed. Speaking in G- with Jesus, his relationship is not with theology purely, but it's with Jesus. I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. It was all about the relationship. So tonight as we partake of the Lord's Supper, the men will pass the bread and they'll pass the cup. Hold it, we'll pray together and we'll partake together. But to just stop today, this evening, and just remember him. Remember him. It is possible for my Christian life to become principally or solely intellectual, and I've left a relationship with him uh, behind. Uh, And we don't have a relationship with the theology, as important as that is, but with him. And to just think about him tonight as we sing these worship songs and then to enjoy him as our savior and to enjoy him tonight as our, our friend. And so if the men will come forward and the worship team will come forward, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together. While they're coming up here, if you're not a Christian uh, this evening, you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, 
um, you can do that right now, uh, right where you're seated. You say, I, wanna, I trust in Jesus as the Savior that God has provided for the forgiveness of sins. Be born again right where you're seated. And then partake of the Lord's Supper with us. But if you haven't done that and you don't want to do that tonight, you want to continue to um, investigate things, then don't partake of the Lord's Supper this evening. Enjoy the rest of the service. But we'll want you to, and you'll want to partake of the Lord's Supper uh, when you are in that relationship with God that the symbols of Jesus' body and his blood uh, were uh, 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 the, the price that was paid in order to bring us into that relationship. So let's consider our Savior tonight and let's worship him and praise him now uh, tonight. And let's just search our hearts and make sure, no, I haven't drifted. Um, it is the relationship that is the most important thing uh, to me.